So we had a recent Twitter poll about the length of our episodes, and it, it was actually sort of 50-50. Uh, I think it was also on Facebook as well, whether or not people wanted us to split them or not. So it's a lot easier for me if we just have a long episode and it's split in two because um, I, I just can do everything once. So audience, I will tell you, uh, we spend the first good amount of time, I don't know if it was 45 minutes or an hour, talking about syphilis. And then on the back end of the show, we talk about some just general STI screening and gonorrhea and chlamydia. So you can, you know, split it yourself. You can look at the timestamps in the show notes <laughs> and pretend that we released two episodes. There's a lot of assigning homework now. Yeah, thanks for nothing, <laughs> Twitter. Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For more of the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much we are responsible to screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're ready. Welcome back to the Curbsiders, Paul Brian. Thank you for joining me tonight. I, I, you know, Paul. It's almost like without the interruption there, I struggle uh, because I'm so used to it now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I was tempted. Yeah, <laughs> I was waiting for someone to jump in. Uh, so of course, with me is the great Paul Williams and uh, returning co-host Dr. Brian Brown. Brian, how you been? Oh, it's been it's been a wild ride, chiefing and uh, learning a lot. So happy to be back. Yes, the the chief resident job is is uh is not it's not an easy year. It's, it's I think it's worth it, but it's not an easy year. Yeah. Okay, Paul. Before we move on here, uh, why don't you tell the audience what we do on this show? Sure, I'm happy to. As always, Matt, we are the internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. We also like to get to know our guests um, at the outset, learn about sort of what makes them tick and how they sort of unwind when they're not doing medicine. So if you're bored or don't like that part, feel free to skip ahead. You can refer to timestamps in our show notes. All right. And Brian, why don't, why don't you tell them about this specific episode? Great. And I'm from New York and I listen to this show on 1.5 speed, so I'll try to slow myself down. <laughs> so uh, I'm really excited for this episode. Um, we're going to be talking about sexually transmitted infections today. Um, I think it's important for a few reasons. One, it's something that I and other medical trainees may get variable exposure to depending on where we practice. Two, um, there are life-changing consequences if we don't treat these things early. And three, because I think learners and practitioners can't be reminded enough that these conditions are out there and we can't assume things about our patients, so we should always take good sexual histories. And without further ado, uh, our guest tonight, Dr. Dana Dunn, an associate professor of medicine and infectious diseases, was a West Coast lifer until she came to New York City for medical school. After completing her MD at SUNY Downstate Medical Center, she traveled to New Haven, where she did her internal medicine residency, chief residency, and infectious diseases fellowship at Yale School of Medicine. She practiced ID full-time, then spent 10 years exclusively seeing patients in the city STD clinic, where she started to invite residents and ID fellows to rotate with her. She has taught for the CDC-funded STD Prevention Rattel Training Center of New England since 2001. 
She's currently back on full-time faculty at Yale School of Medicine, and she serves as the clerkship director for the internal medicine inpatient clerkship, is associate chair for education and academic affairs, and GME director for educator development. She sees patients on the inpatient ID consults, ID general medicine attending service, and in the HIV clinic where she supervises primary care residents in a novel HIV training track. She tries to insert teaching about syphilis into any of the above job descriptions. And as you'll see, she is quite excited to talk to us about syphilis tonight. And she was a great guest. So without further ado, here's our conversation with Dr. Dana Dunn. Dana, let's start off with your one-liner. You can just kind of tell the audience something about yourself and, and maybe include something outside of what you do in medicine. Well, I'm a 50-something transplant from the West Coast who uh, finds my greatest passion really teaching at the bedside. And if I can insert the word syphilis sideways into any conversation, I'm even happier. But I also love to uh, run and do crossword puzzles and uh, have a lot of words with friends uh, games going right now, learning about some new words that I never knew existed. That's that's good. I I need to learn a lot about syphilis, so I'm really glad that we're talking to you tonight. But before we get to that, Brian uh, is going to ask you a question. Paul is going to ask you some stuff. We'll we'll eventually get to this the syphilis and whatnot. Uh, sure. So uh, Dana, I have the good fortune of knowing you not only as an infectious disease specialist, but as a teacher of teachers. So I guess I was going to start by asking, um, what's a favorite piece of advice you got? early on when you were learning how to be a teacher? An early piece of advice was really focusing around trying to find what you love to do and find a way to do more of it. And being able to put yourself in a position where you maybe have some more tools to help other people teach well gives you some some opportunities that, that might not be there otherwise, but I just... I enjoy both teaching, and I'm even happier now that I can help people be more effective teachers. I think I'll, I'll go with my usual one, maybe maybe a twist on an old favorite. Can you make what? So tell me about a recent piece of culture that you've consumed that is not necessarily medicine related, whether it's a book that you've enjoyed or a movie you've enjoyed or even a, a Netflix series that you've been into. What's what's something non medically related that has given you respite? Oh, I have something for each of those. Um, I just started watching The Good Place. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Great oh, yeah. That is a riot. <laughs> Paul recommended that on the show a w- little while back, and I am now hooked on it, too. <laughs> but a couple of other um, things that I had binged on recently, Broad Church, which is a, a BBC murder mystery. That mm-hmm. There's Counterpart that has got the guy from the Traveler's Insurance or Farmer's Insurance that was in Whiplash, and he plays... Oh. Yes. There's this parallel universe that had split off in the 80s, and there's really your counterpart in the other universe, and there's a place you can go from the different sides in a little vault in Berlin. And so he has to play two different characters, and he's amazing just with his body language and posture, how you can recognize which side of the wall uh, basically he's from. And J.K. Simmons and Whiplash is, I think, one of my absolute favorite movies. Not So I'm asking you a question so I can tell you my opinion, which is always a classic Paul move. That works. <laughs> <laughs> well done, Paul. Thank you. 
I wanted to ask this. This is a recent favorite question that we uh, started asking in the in the yeah recent past. So, what is a favorite failure or something that you struggled with and and learned something from, or, or you know came out came out of it better on the other side? Oh, I I think it's a fun question. I might start to do that during interview days. Um, so, I can I give you a medical one and a personal one if they're quick? Sure. So my personal one was my favorite failure was not being able to have my own children because I otherwise wouldn't have my three lovely daughters that I adopted. So that was my favorite failure personally. And my favorite failure professionally, I was attending recently on our inpatient um, medical team, which is HIV ID focused. And I found myself explaining a result to a patient and there was some learners around me. And I recognize it as a very good modeling moment to be using language that the patient could understand and really non-jargon terms. And I was really kind of proud of that moment that I was uh, found myself in to, to model. And so then I did the teach back with the patient and say, so could you tell me back in your own words what you understood? And he said, I have no idea what you just said. so it was a good failure because we're always kind of um trying to strike out on the the residents and students to do the teach back and here i was thinking i was really modeling and it was helpful for me to really remember how hard it is and i i was glad to have failed in front of them so they can know that we struggle too can i ask a a basic question about the teach back is it is it recommended to tell the patient ahead of time that you're going to do the teach back? Just be like, listen, I, I'm going to explain something to you here. It, it's a little bit, some of it's complicated. So I, I at the end, I'm just going to ask you to, you know, tell it back to me just to make sure that you're, you are understanding it. Do you, do you do that? Or do you just kind of tell, just ask them to teach it back, just kind of surprise them like pop quiz? I don't, but I think you, I think it's a very good idea to do what you suggested and I'm going to start doing it tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah, wow. yeah, that's I, tremendous, Matt, because you're supposed to be priming learners. We do it all the time. Exactly. Just, that's great. Uh, okay, so full disclosure, I have not been doing that. But when you <laughs> when you said that story, it it sort of, you know, sparked that that idea. Okay. We're all going to be better tomorrow. Yeah. Um, okay, before we move on, uh, Brian or Paul, did you guys have any picks of the week that you wanted to share? Uh, Brian, I'll go to you first. Uh, I was thinking what I'd say for this, and I guess the thing that sticks out like a sore thumb because it's the biggest thing I've done for my wellness recently is I was down in Orlando for the uh, Aptum conference, but I got to spend some quality time at Disney, which has come a long way since the early 90s when I was there last. And uh, that uh, that Avatar ride, man, that's that's uh, it feels pretty real when you're flying on that on that Banshee there. So uh, that, that's my pick right now. <laughs> Very cool. So everyone head to Orlando. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, I'm not, I'm not going to give a pick of the week. Did you, did you have one? No, nothing. No, I Red Dead Redemption two is as good as everyone says it is. So if you like video games, that's go do that. Otherwise, nah. All right. Well, let's get to the topic uh, for interest of time. I, I think we should just jump right to a case, Brian. Sure. Um, so this is a case I saw at uh, Cash Like Memorial in the primary care clinic. So Trip Panema is a 32-year-old man with no chronic medical issues who presents with a rash. So for the past five days, he's noted pinkish... You like you like the name? You got I, did uh, did Stuart write this case for you? Uh. <laughs> nope. Uh, we're just kindred okay. spirits. Uh, so... <laughs> For the past five days, uh, the patient has noted pinkish brown macules on his palms and soles. On further questioning, uh, he has not been hiking in the woods. 
He does have sex with men and women and uses condoms sometimes, but has not had any recent genitourinary symptoms, including any genital rashes, dysuria, or discharge. And on examination, you see the pinkish macular rash and find a small ulcer on the ventral side of his penis that he actually hadn't noticed. You also find lesions in the mouth that look like a snail had crawled over the area. Hmm. So I guess our first question to start us off is, what diagnosis uh, do you suspect in this sort of case? Well, I'm very excited to be talking about this case. Um, my day is always a good day if I can have treponema in my differential diagnosis. But there is a differential, and especially if they have a rash. Um, and one of this kind of gets back to one of the very most important things when I teach about STIs is if you don't routinize taking a sexual history, it's basically about knowing your host. You're not going to know what to have on your differential diagnosis. And a lot of times people will remember to take a sexual history if there's discharge coming from the penis or something that's very genitally oriented. Uh, so, But for a rash, they might not, especially if they didn't check the genitals. Um, there was an 80-year-old who had a very similar presentation uh, that I was told about who they just didn't assume that could be on the differential. And he was treated for poison ivy, even though to be kind of doing some work grabbing with the soles of his feet would have been kind of tricky since it was both on his soles and feet. They just thought that didn't fit his illness script that they were presuming, so they kind of discarded that. So routinizing taking sexual history, if somebody's coming in with monocular visual complaints that might not make people think about sexually transmitted infections, but if you take a sexual history and he has risk, then in this case, it's men who have sex with men right now is where the epidemiology of a lot of infectious syphilis cases are, then you wouldn't think about ocular syphilis. So luckily for you, you were routinizing that, it sounds like, and I appreciate that, that you got all the risk factors. Who are you having sex with? Are you using condoms consistently? Um, when was maybe the last contact so that you can get a little bit of an information about some incubation, which is kind of imperfect but can be helpful for certain things. And then so you know that STIs are going to be in the, on the differential. And of the STIs that are on the differential, this certainly, syphilis would certainly fit. You can see an overlap of uh, resolving, painless, sore that he might have missed at the same time as secondary. Um, and then you're really describing nice mucus patches in his mouth, which a lot of people wouldn't know if they saw it. So good for you that you kind of put those together. Um, acute HIV could be on the differential, you know, with a rash in somebody who's sexually um, active that where that is the, uh, where a sexually transmitted infection is operative. Disseminated gotococcus wouldn't present that way. It's really not going to be a, a kind of a symmetrically distributed rash. It's usually pustules that are going to be tender, you know, a few kind of peripheral lesions, but nothing going on in the the mouth that would be consistent with what you described. And then there would be, you know, certainly like mono and uh, you talked about maybe Rocky Mountain spotted fever. I'm not exactly sure what part of the U.S. the hospital is that you're working in. <laughs> but, <laughs> no one uh, is. Cashlackville? Uh, so certain areas there may be tick-borne diseases that could present more accurately and atypical measles, et cetera. So there's definitely still things in your differential, but lucky for you, you also know your host. And for personal and for public health purposes, it's on your differential, so you're going to test it. And almost any test you send for syphilis right now, since this will be secondary syphilis, will be positive. 
So the is it is it common for patients to have the chancre, like the penile ulcer, at the same time that they have the the findings of the secondary syphilis? They do, does that like primary and secondary overlap like that? It can. It definitely can. I mean, it can. On average, you know, the average incubation period from the time of contact to coming in with a symptom, a chancre that you would notice or a provider would notice on average is 30 days, but it can range from like 10 to 90. And then typically it starts to heal and then the spirochete replicates again and does the secondary hematogenous dissemination. So, you know, depending on how large the lesion was, uh, how it sounds like he's just starting to get a rash now. His titer is probably continuing to go up. So you're catching him at that probably intersection between the two, but you can definitely see an overlap. So let's let's suppose for a second that in training, a doctor didn't really fully uh, understand the different stages of syphilis and then was hoping no one ever called him or her on that. If you mm-hmm. could just sort of concretely explain um, sort of the, the, the stages of syphilis just for the, the learners out there who may not know, even though we clearly all know here very, 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 very well. <laughs> After contact with an infected individual and in, for a person to be infectious, they needs to be a contact that would have... The primary lesion, which I'll d- define, or this rash, this kind of early, you know, in the first months or year of having acquired syphilis themselves is kind of the infectious stage. So exposure with an infectious uh, person, the numbers are kind of vague, but it's say about 30, 30% likely that you'll catch syphilis if you have contact with an infected person. So I mentioned that 90 or 10 to 90 days later, on average a month, the first stage comes, which is a um, the primary lesion starts as a papule at the site of the inoculation, which is usually going to be on mucous membranes, vaginally for women. The lower third of the labia is very common just with respect to the mechanics of intercourse there. It could be anal for people who are having anal receptive intercourse, penile shaft for men, but it can also be in your mouth if you've had oral contact. And there's been some cases you can Google breast primary lesions. You can Google hand primary lesions. Uh, But it's usually mucous membranes. So it starts as a papule, and then it starts to ulcerate, and it's classically painless. So so that painless ulcer is called a chancre. Um, And it's called the hard chancre because if you squeeze it, it's fairly firm. Like if you were squeezing the tip of your nose, um, that contradistincts it from chancroid, which I'm sure you also remember, and you also remember the name of the organism that causes it, but that's a homophilus, and as an extracellular bacteria, it incites a lot of polymorphonuclear leukocytes right to the site, so it's painful. It's like undermined. It's pussy. Syphilis is the stealth pathogen that kind of sneaks in, and the immune system barely notices it's there, so some some plasma cells make their way down there and lymphocytes are like, what's going on? They kind of start to ulcerate. So it's really not much of a ruckus the immune system feels. So it's painless. It's it's firm because it's like probably maybe laying down some collagen, just gradually inflama- inflamed. And that will go away without any treatment at all uh, within a couple of weeks. Two to eight weeks later, so it can overlap for reasons we don't know, because there's no animal model of syphilis, um, although rabbit testicles are the subject of uh, many attempts to to try to find an animal model for syphilis, the spirochete will replicate again, and then you really get this hematogenous dissemination and 
that's called secondary. And the symptoms of secondary are typically a rash. And it can be anywhere from just a few spots. People can really come in with just a couple of spots who've had syphilis before and they go, I know this is going to be syphilis. And you're like, this doesn't look like the textbook. The textbook has full-blown cases. Um, it can involve the palms and soles, but it only does about half the time. If you do see palms and soles, you should definitely think about syphilis. And just as Brian described, as if he'd read it in a textbook, <laughs> um, the, the copper-colored macules with little stria that run through them, they can look more hyperpigmented in dark-skinned people. And in my experience with patients with HIV, can kind of be hyperkeratotic even. So other symptoms you can get at that point are constitutional, the old specific malaise has been described, generalized lymphadenopathy, and then you can get some focal um, symptoms of alopecia areata, you know, clumps of hair falling out. Um, you can get uh, signs of secondary syphilis in your mouth that he was describing, that Brian was describing, called mucus patches, which can be on the lips or in the tonsils, posterior pharyngeal wall. And that can be really hard as a new learner or somebody who hasn't really seen it before to pick it out. So seeing and grabbing a syphilis expert, if you have somebody like that, to really help you do the exam, look on the scrotum for these things that almost look like ringworm, and really without maybe tangential light or really intense and, and explicit you know, seeking out, you might miss that on the scrotum, but it could be the only stigmata, and you would miss a case of secondary syphilis if you had not maybe checked in those spots, because uh, it can show before you even get the skin rash. So a couple of other little things I'll just say about secondary is you can get syphilitic hepatitis at that stage. And the pearl for that, considering that, we just had a case of that recently, your alkaline phosphatase is up out of proportion to your transaminases. Like your transaminases might be in the hundreds, 200, and your alkaphos will be 800. So somebody like that, you know, with or without a rash, you take a sexual history. If, if there is a current epidemiologic link with their sexual uh, history and gender preference or venue, Think about syphilis. Also nephrotic syndrome. So that is another thing that you can get. There can be some early symptomatic neurologic symptoms at this stage as well. So something called symptomatic early neurosyphilis. You can see uh, ocular about half the time, uh, posterior uveitis, anterior uveitis, panuveitis, some other things. You can see otic. So somebody coming in with sudden sense of neural hearing loss sudden vertigo or tinnitus, you can think about you know, early neurosyphilis. So other cranial nerve abnormalities, aseptic meningitis, all of that can kind of be accordioned in in this stage. But with again, without any treatment, people don't go in, they think they have a virus or poison ivy or whatever, it goes away on its own. And then most people, like 75%, and this is like from Oslo, Norway studies at the turn of the last century where they institutionalized people with early syphilis and said, what happens? Most people, well, then you'll never hear from it again. They'll just have latent syphilis where their blood tests are positive, but they have no symptoms. And about 25% will go on to have late syphilis, which might be neuro later neurologic symptoms, tabies, um, general paresis, or cardiovascular, which might be aortic root dilation or coronary arteritis, or they might have gummitus disease. So those are the stages. Yeah, it sounds and and just it. I, I guess this is why I've had trouble with this as a diagnosis, and I sort of like learned it for boards, and then, you know, I I once in a while I send an RPR, but it's it's basically 
Yeah, it, it can do so many different things, and uh, the gnome, the the classification system is a little bit is a little bit tricky. I find. Um, yeah. But I, I think that's a good that's a good overview. I think I'm starting to sort of it's starting to ch- take shape for me now as far as <laughs> this goes. And then just as a qu- very quick aside, uh, Brian, this this um, this physical exam finding that. Brian had included a snail crawled over the area talking about the mouth. When I was when I was reading an article about this to prepare, it said it showed a picture of what that would look like and then it said this area is just teeming with organisms and I just thought that that was a description that was kind of scary. It's like, you know, it 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 looked rather subtle to some extent, but it, you know, they said it was teeming with organisms and this person's highly infectious. So watch out for that audience. Yeah. <laughs> And I, I, I would just add that there's kind of heaped up, you can get the general rash and secondary syphilis, but they can really make these heaped up lesions in intertriginous areas like the groin or under your breasts or between the buttock, and that's called condylomatolata. And it can really look like warts, but it's wider and a little kind of flat-topped. And talk about teeming, there would be a positive dark field right there very quickly. So speaking of organisms being in lesions, um, you know, obviously with our both our dermatology patients as well as our um, patients who might be coming in at risk for syphilis um, who don't want to feel uh, disenfranchised or stigmatized, um, I like to be able to shake hands with patients whenever possible. But uh, so are, if someone had a rash on their palms and I'm sort of meeting them, um, is th- is this a rash where? Is it, you know, is it very contagious? You know, you, you know, you mentioned those articles with the hand lesions, or is that just if I have a cut on my hand? What, what advice would you give to providers? So the, the dry lesions are, that are not the condylomatolata that I had mentioned that would be in the moist intertriginous lesions aren't really high yield for dark field, and they really don't have a lot of organisms. Uh, so for all intents and purposes, I would tell you to not be concerned about shaking hands. Um, there's been so much syphilis through the ages, and I think that there would probably have been a signal that would really have emerged if if it was a nosocomial hazard in that way. And so I don't think you have to worry about it. But then to do the whole exam, I'd put the gloves on. So Matt mentioned sending off the RPR, which I'm not even, I, I'm so bewildered by the testing. And even during training, there were a lot of, there's RPRs and VRDLs and things that just had no anchors to them. So what what are we doing now? <laughs> Well, in terms of sort of initial screening, like what does is, what is the diagnostic testing look like if you suspect syphilis? So I would imagine the listeners, uh, as, as successful as your podcast is, are listening from all over. Um, so it might, the testing algorithm might differ depending on where people are working. But I'll, I will just maybe simplify it, hopefully, to say that you need two serologic tests to make the diagnosis of syphilis. And they come in two flavors and usually need one of each flavor. There are the non-treponemal tests, which means that they're looking for antibodies that aren't really specific for treponema pallidum, but they're shared by treponema pallidum. And historically, and it sounds still like, Paul, where you work, it might be the RPR. So there's an RPR, there's a VDRL, they are just different versions, but they're both not specific for treponema pallidum. There's a lot of other diseases that would make them positive, so if you get reactivity for that uh, on one of those tests, it's always confirmed with a confirmatory specific treponemal test. And again, there's been many flavors of those tests around, but you've probably heard of a TPPA, 
the treponema particle, uh, treponema pallidum particle agglutination, that's become the favorite one over the FTA, which was a fluorescent treponemal antibody absorption test, which had a lot of false positives. So the CDC had recommended if you're starting with a non-treponemal test, if it's uh, if it's negative, we'll go back to if it's negative. But if it's if it's positive, there's a lot of reasons it could be positive, so you have to confirm it with a treponemal test. So if they're both positive, you have syphilis, and then you still have to use your history and physical and exam to stage it. Is it primary? Is there a primary lesion? Do they have symptoms of secondary? If they have no symptoms, is it latent? And I would just make one other distinction that I kind of had left out in my overview of the stages, and this might come up for treatment, but there is a distinction between what we call early latent and late latent. So early latent would be that you'd have to fulfill four criteria to be able to say you're early latent, and that it's uh, early syphilis then would therefore encompass the primary lesion, secondary, and early latency. And the reason there's kind of that's um, defined as a thing is it's a treatment difference. Think people are thought to be that the spirochetes replicating pretty actively. And in that Oslo study that I had mentioned when they were watching people with early syphilis, within the first year of going into latency, there would be quite a few people, like up to a quarter, that would have these shankers that would recur back on the original site, or they'd, they'd have recurring rashes. So there's probably kind of loose control of the immune system and the spirochete the, t the struggle was still going on about who was going to win the day to be symptomatic, your immune system or the spirochete. So early syphilis or early latency, you can define as either, say you're checking somebody every year in your office and they were negative, 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 and then they're positive. They turned positive in the last year. You could call that early latent as long as they have no symptoms of primary or secondary. Or if they got exposed to somebody who had infectious syphilis and their, their tests were positive, but you couldn't find any evidence of active lesions or rash. Or if they said, oh, you know, actually, I didn't come in, but six months ago, I had the sore on my penis, and then I got a rash. I didn't know what that was. So symptoms consistent with primary or secondary in the past year could also be classified as early. And all that's going to be treated, just to cut to one chase, with one dose of penicillin, as opposed to everybody else who you have a positive titer, but they have no um, signs of primary or secondary, and they don't know how long. They've, they've never been tested. They went to the American Red Cross, and this is the first time they've gotten tested. They can't tell you about any recent. Those are all latent, and you have to presume it could have been there for a while, and it's the conservative thing to do to presume the spirochetes replicating slowly. And so you really need to have longer duration of penicillin to catch it at its doubling time where the cell wall active antibiotic is going to do its work. So I'll make that distinction. But now I forget your original question. Well, I, I want to, and I, I just want to point out to the to the audience, and, and just I'll try to recap just to make sure that I'm getting it. Latent just means the patient is asymptomatic. So, and then you're making the distinction early latent. Those people we don't know yet if they're gonna they're gonna go on to have more symptoms, and they might still be um, infectious and be able to transmit syphilis. So, those are people that we would be targeting for treatment. Correct. You'll, you, you would target them for treatment, and you could treat them just as you would treat somebody with a shanker or a rash, which is just right. one dose penicillin. Then I, th I guess we should finish it. So the late latent, meaning like they're, uh, how, how long does it have to be for them to qualify to be late latent, and, and how do you treat that one? 
So if they're late latent, and that's exactly how we, we call it, late latent. It sounds like a funny, clunky term, but that's the term. <laughs> it does. <laughs> so it's, it's really, you almost default that if people have a positive blood test and they, you can't find any active disease like a rash or a sore, a, a lesion, you, it's better just to default to presume that it's been there for a while because you, it's more conservative to treat them for longer. I so see. Every, almost everybody else would be late latent unless they could fulfill those strict criteria to tell uh-huh. you, I had a negative test within the last year. I just got exposed to somebody who's infectious or I just had a sore on my penis in the last three months. Then you might feel comfortable enough to do the less conservative thing to treat him as if it's pretty, a pretty new infection still. Wonderful, and I want to. And I'm sorry to, to dwell on these tests, but um, but in someone who with a known prior infection, do you mind sort of talking about the utility of the treponemal versus the non-treponemal tests? So if you, if you know they've had a history of infection and you're concerned for reinfection, which how how do you use them to basically to to make the diagnosis or to not? So actually, bef- can related to that question, what I should should just do to build on. Uh, my first description of using what we would call the traditional testing algorithm, where you started with an RPR, the non-specific treponemal test, and if positive, you had to confirm it with the TPPA, which is specific. Many places in your listening area have converted to what's called the reverse screening algorithm. So the reverse screening algorithm now starts with a specific treponemal test. And you might think, why didn't, why, why didn't we do that before? The older specific treponemal test, the TPPA, is very manual. It's like a lot of lab time. Uh, it's expensive. Um, but it was needed to confirm to make sure the first w- test was not a false positive. So they finally were able to automate a specific test for th- high throughput testing. And the reason this made sense is that most of the testing done in the United States is done on pregnant women. So most tests are negative. So if you had all this lab expense and person power being spent to confirm, which is typically 10% false positive rate on your positive RPR, so you save hundreds and hundreds of thousands of tests, take 10% of them that had to go through the expensive manual treponemal palatum particle agglutination. Now they can automate all those and 97% of them are negative. So you can rule out a lot. It really helps the lab through flow and person power and all that kind of stuff that we sometimes don't think about on the front line that the labs have to deal with. So the reverse screening algorithm now starts with a specific test. So if you're negative, you're negative. You've never been exposed. It's it's either a chemiluminescent uh, immunoassay or there's an ELISA kind of base methodology. If you're positive... Then you send, the reason it's called a reverse screening algorithm is then you do the reverse of what you used to do, a positive uh, screening specific treponemal test. Now, if it's positive, you do an RPR. You do the old non-specific one. Why? Because the non-specific RPRs and VDRLs are quantitative. They tell you how active the disease is. So you need to kind of see how active it is to be able to know, help you with the stage, to help you with following it with response to treatment. If they're discordant, if the screening treponemal test is positive but your RPR is negative, the lab will automatically do a tiebreaker test and they will send it because by this time you're you're dealing with not very many specimens. So the lab is okay about doing the specific manual treponemal test, the TPPA. 
So the scenario might be, and I'm sure people need to draw like a flow chart in their mind to follow this, but there's some very good publications that where you'll find this. So if the first two are discordant, where the specific treating test is positive and the RPR is negative, you do the tiebreaker test. If the tiebreaker is positive, that means, and it gets to your question, Paul, that means you probably had previously been exposed. There's a few possibilities. You were previously exposed to syphilis and you got treated. Now your RPR is negative, it's not very active, you've been treated. Or, possibility number two, you've been previously exposed, but you haven't been treated. Because a number of people will zero-revert. <laughs> this is why you avoid syphilis, right? You zero, many people will become inactive. Their, their RPR or VDRL can spontaneously become non-reactive. How do you tell the two apart? You ask the patient, have you ever been tested for syphilis or treated for syphilis? They often can say, yes, I got treated, and if you don't have any, and I got my three shots, and there's some, some tricks and some other phone calls you can make if they can't answer that or don't know to your local health department, because um, they track, since this is a reportable disease, they can say, oh, no, Joe Blow or John Jane, whomever, 1989, they had this titer, they got this treatment, and you know that's consistent with treated syphilis. If you can't get confirmation that it's consistent with treated syphilis, you presume it's late latent, once you do your exam and you treat them for late latent. The last third possibility for that scenario where it's discordant and the RPR is negative and both of the specific tests are positive is it could be early, like they just had contact with some in the last couple of weeks because the treponemal test turned positive before the non-treponemal. So if you have it with your sexual history, have a high index of suspicion, you'd probably bring them back in a couple of weeks to repeat all those tests. This, Thank you. I I just want to clarify. So the the we're starting with the TPPA for this reverse algorithm. Then we do no. the oh okay. We we are not that. That's one of the confusing things is that the names sound so familiar. Treponemal antibody and TPPA sound very similar, right? Uh, so the reverse screening test starts with a specific treponemal antibody, and it's not called a TPPA. That's your manual, old-fashioned confirmatory test. So they're both specific for treponema, but the new automated ones are typically immunoassays. So it's a, a CIA, an EIA, but I confusingly see. at many hospitals, they call it TREP antibody because they, yep. they might switch what vendor they use or what assay they use. So they just want to call it TREP antibody and the learners and everybody, the attendings, <laughs> They're all confused because that sounds very similar to TPPA. I'm um, I'm glad I asked. I I think I so I think I got it now. So the TPPA is you said the old test mm -hmm. that takes a lot of manpower. So mm -hmm. we reserve that now for our third test, our tiebreaker test. Exactly. And the ELISA or the EIA is the treponemal antibody, and that's that's our first test. That's automated. It's quick. Exactly. Okay. And just so I'm clear, once positive. <laughs> The Chepalima antibody test is positive always and forever. Is that correct? For the most part. I mean, I think it's a good rule of thumb. There was some literature that came out. If you catch somebody really early with early syphilis, there are some people who will serial revert their specific treponemal antibody to negative. Well, that was a good teach back. Go yeah, that's <laughs> it. There we go. <laughs> we, right. You should have primed beforehand. You can't trust me. You really got to prime <laughs> me, and then I'll try to teach it back to you, but I might get it wrong. <laughs> So you started to allude to tracking down a patient's history. So I guess that's a good segue. If you could tell us a bit about um, 
mandatory reporting or contact tracing for patients when we do find uh, someone with syphilis? Yeah, so this is going to vary somewhat state by state, but I would venture to say in all states, um, syphilis is a reportable disease, as is chlamydia and gonorrhea and HIV, neonatal herpes, chancroid. Um, But different states have, in Connecticut, for example, we have something called dual reporting. So the labs have to report a positive test. So any positive HIV test that comes in that's new to the system or a positive, um, we won't say all the names of the syphilis tests again, one of those tests come in, or chlamydia or gonorrhea, they send it up to the state. But there's also something called provider reporting, which is a separate form in Connecticut. It's like an STD-23. It's much more enriched at the provider or some, their delegate fills out that says, what stage exactly was it of syphilis or was it PID for gonorrhea and what did you treat with? And then at the state level, the, the, the disease intervention specialists and the STD control people put together the lab report and make sure there's a provider report. Yeah, they had this and they got to the person and they treated them and they treated them with the right drug, low priority, you know, like we're not going to have to go after them. So it is, you are mandated to report. It just may be that if it's only lab reporting in your state, that's a definite, but if there's an additional provider, provider report, you should find out in many do. And they really, if you're in a large medical system, there's probably infection control practitioners or somebody in your offices that get those. Same thing as if you had a case with of typhoid or Shigella, um, those kind of public health reporting where they really want more information. So that's the reporting. Uh, but for, were you asking about um, partner notification? Uh, yes. Partner notification also will vary by state, but syphilis is currently a a very high priority for disease intervention specialists and public health departments. So if you diagnose somebody with infectious syphilis, so the the primary chancre stage or the secondary rash stage where they can infect somebody, that's a really high priority. So you can call and again, get, it's really, I have the, all the house officers and students at our institution have this on their speed dial. I have the number by heart and I make them put in their phone because they will interview your patient for you for their contacts and they're much more convincing with respect to the the relevant need to know and why it's important for them to get some contact and partner information. They'll make a contract with them because it can be very patient dependent. They might have one partner and they really are invested to contact them. So the DIS will say, okay, I'll just call you back in a week and make sure that happened. Or they might totally not want to and be very happy that this will be done confidentially. It's legislatively authorized uh, through state statutes that they can do this. And they'll typically then get to the partner if they can. And we can talk more about that current uh, difficulty right now with partner tracing with the syphilis epidemic. Uh, they'll say, you've been exposed to syphilis, you need to come to the health department. They can often even do testing in the field. and They'll drive them to the health department to get tested, depending on your state and really how many cases you're dealing with. So thanks for all that, Dana. So um, bringing it back to our case here to wrap up our syphilis section. So, you know, obviously there's a lot of counseling that would be involved for this patient. I know we've had separate episodes in the past on HIV and PrEP, and um, I think there'll be one on herpes out by the time this one comes. And perhaps maybe this paves away for a separate episode on MSM health. But I guess as far as syphilis is concerned, how would you counsel this patient at this point about um, about barrier protection or abstinence or other possibilities to prevent reinfection and spreading to others? 
So I think, you know, the quick little cocktail of, of counseling would include some anticipatory guidance that he might get a reaction after the penicillin because when you have secondary syphilis, you have a higher spirochete load, so he might get the Yarkes-Herxheimer reaction 12 to 24 hours later, shaking chills, fever. It would be normal. He could take Tylenol. Certainly any like swelling of the throat and difficulty breathing might be a penicillin allergy, so he should seek care, but that might help him not freak out if we tell him that ahead of time. No sex for a week. Uh, so for infectious syphilis, we feel like they are then not infectious after a week. So we say, please, no sex for a week. And then it's general risk reduction counseling. But I explicitly, because this could be like an aha thing and I had no idea, remind them you can get syphilis and other things like gonorrhea through oral contact. So a lot of men coming in with primary shankers in the mouth, not thinking, thinking that that's safe, but you can get syphilis. So that might be an aha thing, reducing partner numbers, getting his partners tested. Etc. And you'd want to, oh, I should just say, because he definitely needs to get tested for HIV. I would test him for other STIs since he's tested positive for this. And perfect segue, he's definitely somebody we'd want to get into prep. So I'm glad that you did a session on that. Great. Excellent. So um, should we move on to the... Yeah, Brian, why don't you, why don't you move us on to our next case here? Okay, excellent. Well, uh, our next patient is, is waiting, so we'll bring her in. Uh, this is a 19-year-old female, uh, who 19-year-old woman, who uh, presents to Cashlack STD Clinic after doing an STD screening test um, based on just guideline-based screening. Um, she's in a new relationship. Uh, she's using condoms, uh, but she wants to check before stopping using condoms with her new boyfriend. Um, she is currently asymptomatic. And actually, on your screening tests, her results do come back positive for GC and chlamydia. So I guess, can you start by telling us about the natural histories of gonorrhea and chlamydia, as far as more focusing on their primary presentation for now, um, and maybe compare and contrast the two? So I would say that most people with any STI you can name have no symptoms. That's just a good basic rule to follow. So she came in asymptomatic and just wanted screening. So she's very typical. So with respect to comparing and contrasting, men are more likely to be symptomatic with gonorrhea than chlamydia if they're going to be symptomatic. Women, you know, really not a lot of symptoms with either, but if they're going to get symptoms, uh, gonorrhea can give them more bleeding in between their periods or heavy bleeding, vaginal discharge. You can get infections of some of the accessory sex glands. Um, and we're not getting into pelvic inflammatory disease, but gonococcal-based PID can be more acute and have more abscesses. But it's pretty typical that she'd be asymptomatic if she didn't really have pelvic inflammatory disease. And a lot of people have very subtle, if not asymptomatic, pelvic inflammatory disease, which is the whole reason about that started uh, the reason why we screen for chlamydia uh, because it can be asymptomatic and people can get PID and tubal infertility and not know it. So regarding testing patients who are asymptomatic, since this seems to be a really big, important group that maybe we can catch early, can you tell us a bit about the recommendations for whom we should screen when they're asymptomatic for GC and or chlamydia? So the guidelines for women, you know, as you were pointing out, if they're under 25 and they're sexually active, they get screened for chlamydia and gonorrhea. And if you could see some of those CDC statistics about the that show the histograms in men and women in the age groups and the 
case rates per 100,000, you'll see why they use 25 as a cutoff. It's like 20, 85% of all the chlamydia is in 25 or less. So it's a definite good uh, number crunching, high yield, uh, a number crunching meaning that they're really looking at uh, numbers needed to treat and impact a lot of chlamydia there. Amazingly, there's really no guidelines for screening men for chlamydia or gonorrhea. Um, uh, and, and not syphilis until recently. If you're men of sex with men right now, because of the epidemic, it's, it's recommended the current, uh, epidemic of who's getting syphilis, but, um, in, it's only really in women that they should get screened for chlamydia and gonorrhea. Uh, if somebody is coming and wanting screening and are asking for it, uh, we can certainly talk about what you would test for, but with respect to screening guidelines, there's nothing for trichomonas. Um, everybody should get an HIV test once. And I know you had a previous episode about that and how often you would do that and in whom. Um, and uh, people have been vaccinated against hepatitis B, hopefully, and, and get vaccinated against HPV. And certainly don't screen them for HPV outside of doing uh, assessing for cervical or anal cancer transformation from high-risk HPV. I feel like in my practice, it's it's usually the patient who walks in and like, I would like screen for everything. And it's not even giving new risk factors that they'll at least endorse. But, you know, and I certainly would never turn that down. But in terms of, I guess, specifically in regards to testing or screening for chlamydia and gonorrhea, what are, what are the preferred testing uh, modalities? Like what, what test do you choose? So I think, again, I would first start with your sexual history and who are they having sex with. So you would know, especially for men, if they're going to be at higher risk for syphilis. Uh, for, for women, where in their body they're being exposed, because I always tell them I ask that because it helps me know where to check. Um, it's not, uh, and I think that's very empowering for trainees and even maybe your attendings just to say when you ask about gender, it's to know your host. And when you're asking about your sexual the sites that are exposed, it's not because it's idle curiosity, it's because you need to know where to put the swab. Uh, not everything comes out the urine. Um, I had a case at our institution where these two nurse practitioners brought a dilemma that they had these two guys that had chlamydia. They were both fine with mentioning that they had male sex partners. They both named the same guy. He came in, they said, we tested him, he didn't have chlamydia. It's like, where did you test him? We tested his urine. We thought it was a very sensitive test. And nucleic acid amplification tests are sensitive in the site where you're exposed, but it's a very focal infection. So if they have rectal exposure from receptive intercourse, you need to do a rectal swab. If they have put their mouth on their partner's genitals, you need to check a pharyngeal swab. Um, really, we're not seeing a lot of rectal and pharyngeal chlamydia and gonorrhea outside of men who have sex with men, for example, not in women, but there is some. So really your policies can be based on your local prevalence. Um, certainly if somebody's got a woman who's got a lot of sex partners or does, exchanges, does any commercial sex work, um, asking about sites exposed and, and checking them. So I would send chlamydia and gonorrhea separately from uh, urine for men. For women, you can do vaginal that you collect uh, or endocervical that you collect, or they can do their own self-collected vaginal swabs. Um, a lot of times people feel like if it's not time for a pelvic and they just want screening, I'm just going to send them to the bathroom for a urine. But for women, depending on the product of the nucleic acid amplification brand that you're using, because there's three, uh, urine can be much less sensitive than a self-collected vaginal swab, which is an FDA-cleared way 
for the patient. So you can keep the convenience of patient collected, but not lose the sensitivity. So ditch the urine on women and have them do their own vaginal swabs, urine for women and, or excuse me, for men. And then just a couple centimeters up in the rectal area and throat swab is just like you're doing a strep test. And I would add then HIV testing if somebody wants everything, syphilis testing if somebody wants everything. You could talk about hepatitis B and C. Um, herpes, I there is a herpes antibody. And uh, there's a herpes bill of rights that say if you don't mention that they can be screened for herpes, <laughs> that's not good. I mean, there's a, you, there's a good test. It's very accurate. It, they're chronically infected. They can shed and they can sp spread it to their partners. So it's really... Um, would be disingenuous for people not to mention that they can get screened for herpes, even if they feel uncomfortable with how they're going to counsel about the results. And I would just warn about that is that you're, you can have some false positives if people really have only had like one or two lifetime sex partners. So, cause your prevalence goes up as your sex number goes up. So somebody who's had quite a number of sex partners, if the herpes spot, the blood test is positive for type two herpes, uh, it's probably accurate. But if they have one or two, you might want to do an alternate test. And just to be explicit while we're talking about those tests, can you uh, just specifically say what you tell the patient to do in the bathroom? So for the man who's giving the DNA probe, uh, sorry, the, the urine, and for the uh, woman who's doing the vaginal swab, how do you counsel the patient? Yeah, it's such a great question. And for all these tests, pretty much in most parts of the U.S., they're all nucleic acid amplification tests, and all these sites we've mentioned are approved. So the men, that's such a great question, because they might not know how to urinate. I mean, they know how to urinate, obviously, but <laughs> I tell them... Ideally. You start in... You want, here's this cup. I want you to start in the cup. Give me about a third of a cup, then take the cup away and do the rest in the toilet, because you really want to uh, enrich it for the urethral fraction of urine. Um, I mean, the whole cup might be fine, but the studies it shows like 95 to 6% sensitive were done that way. So do have them do it that way. For women, there's actually uh, directions that you can download. Uh, if you Google it, uh, vaginal self-collected vaginal swabs, you can put it in the bathroom like a poster, and it shows them the swab goes in like a tampon, 20 seconds, you know, twirl it around, put it in the vial. So you can give them the verbal instructions or you can put a poster in the room. Um, same for men collecting their own rectal swabs. If we have time, I can tell you about a clinic in the UK that has a phenomenal express track, test yourself for everything with holograms and pneumatic tubes uh, that is maybe the future of really high out, uh, throughput STI screening. But I, I don't think we should pass up that offer. <laughs> you, can, you can Google, this is probably like a YouTube thing. You can Google Dean Street STD Clinic Express Visit or something like that. And you'll find the videos. I saw it at the, some of the HIV meetings uh, a couple of years ago. And this guy walks into a swanky clinic. He kind of checks in on the iPad at the desk and is directed into a bathroom uh, where the swabs are. And then a hologram kind of appears that shows him where in his throat he should swab and then where in his rectum you should swab, and um, how to urinate, and all, everything gets loaded into this pneumatic tube, and then he kind of walks downstairs to this comfy lounge. He's reading a magazine. Someone calls him in for some blood work. He goes off to the, the pub or the coffee shop until he gets a text. You know, you're good to go or you're not. So very convenient and um, uh, a lot of self-efficacy. I, I know that they're trying to rule out quite a few of them in the U.K., 
That's is is that coming to uh, your institution anytime soon? I don't know. You know, there is this uh, website where people can order something called I Want. So you can go to IWantTheKit.org. So people can get mailers where you can get tested for chlamydia, gonorrhea, trichomonas um, for women, um, chlamydia and gonorrhea for men, and it mails away and you get a, a, a phone call or, or a number to call for your test results and locations to the nearest STI clinic for treatment if that's necessary. So there is some... The, the newer testing uh, that doesn't require really physician collected or provider collected and it can be patient collected should open up some opportunities. Uh, so while we're talking about testing, I wanted to just briefly ask mycoplasma genitalium, is that is that an important player we should know about in this world of GC and chlamydia or is it something our learners don't need to focus on? It is turning out to be an important player. Um, definite numbers of meta-analyses showing that it's an independent predictor of cervicitis, male urethritis, pelvic inflammatory disease, probably adverse birth outcomes. There is now a nucleic acid amplification test for it. it it's not widely available, um, but they've certainly been field testing it to look at the prevalence in certain communities and its associations that I just mentioned. So we're getting there. I think you should probably soon, if not already, be able to order it on symptomatic people, but there's, we're, we're still far away from any screening recommendations because then all the work would have to be done about, as was done for chlamydia and reproductive health issues. So is that something you would get off the bat in someone with symptoms of, say, urethritis, or it's more like in the refractory people where they're not responding or something like that? Yeah, I mean, I think the in practice, we're all over the map right now. Um, most people would treat for and somebody with urethritis that didn't look uh, either have a positive gram stain for gonorrhea or look characteristic for gonorrhea, and if you're a low prevalence area, they would treat for what we would call NGU, non-gonococcal urethritis, with azithromycin, which would cover mycoplasma and it would cover chlamydia. Non-responsive cases might either be trichomonas in men who have sex with women, and actually as much trichomonas causes urethritis in some field tests field-tested area as causes as chlamydia causes. It's been way underdiagnosed. So it could be trichomonas, and you can empirically treat for that in some places test. Uh, or it could be mycoplasma that's resistant to azithro, and uh, that is something we're seeing. And it uh, looks like moxifloxacin might be the go-to drug for those people who are resistant. Doxy is not a good option for those patients. But we're kind of in a bit of a middle ground about uh, how much testing for mycoplasma we're doing yet. And when you just mentioned the gram stain for um, gram-negative diplococci, is, if the person, I mean, that we would only be able to do that if the person's having like the, like discharge that we can swab and send, right? So if the majority of people are getting sent, diagnosed by nucleic acid amplification tests, we're not going to be able to to do that gram stain? A lot of sites um, don't have the ability to do gram stain if you're not really conveniently located near a academic or hospital lab that could do it for you. A lot of STI clinics that I've worked at in the past have gone through the CLIA process of being able to do it. It's a moderate CLIA activity. You have to get like unknowns and pay money. and But it's so useful because it's a very, can be very sensitive in symptomatic men and it get, helps you specifically know that you need to treat for that as opposed to just treating syndromically for both chlamydia and gonorrhea, which is probably an overuse of antibiotic. Mm -hmm. 
So I would encourage you, if you are proximal to a hospital and somebody has expressible discharge, you can get it on any kind of a, just even a bacterial swab and ask for a stat gram stain and really get a specific diagnosis right away if you can. And they can still pee in a cup and not be uh, uh, worried about an endourethral uh, discomfort uh, that we used to have to do on everybody. You can just express some of the discharge and use that for your gram stain and go ahead and have them urinate in a cup for the nucleic acid answer. Okay, wonderful. Thank you. And we definitely should get into, so, you know, I've been reading about this, this uh, so-called super gonorrhea. There was this, uh, I guess it was February 2018 in emerging infectious infectious diseases. They reported a case of ceftriaxone-resistant Neisseria gonorrhea in the United, um, not the United States, it was in Canada, but they're worried it's now made it to North America. And this patient was exposed to somebody uh, in Asia. So... And I guess that's where, apparently, that's where this comes from. Okay. So can you just talk about the, the treatment in general and then why we're now worried about this, like, kind of super bug and what we're going to do about it? Yeah, so the the CDC has multidrug-resistant gonorrhea up there with C. diff and um, bad resistant gram-negative rods as emergencies. So a couple of years ago, the CDC changed the gonorrhea treatment guidelines because of some cases that you just described that were described in Japan and Northern Europe of, you know, emerging resistant or uh, getting towards resistant ceftriaxone strains. So with the kind of concern lapping at our shores that we would have somebody come here with resistant gonorrhea, they decided with, they got a little flack for this because it wasn't totally evidence-based, but they decided to, to use ceftriaxone and azithro together, um, not because this, the azithro was being used for chlamydia. I mean, this is even in people where you've proved they don't have chlamydia, but what they're doing is you, they're using dual treatment for gonorrhea in the hopes that dual treatment will uh, hinder the emergence of resistance because there's still probably about 75% of gonococcal strains are sensitive to the macrolides and the tetracycline. So if the ceftriaxin doesn't get it, they're hoping the macrolide might. So they're using this dual therapy approach. So your patient, for example, if they just had gonorrhea and chlamydia ruled out, it's going to be the same regimen, whether they had chlamydia or not, because we include the azithromycin, even if you've ruled out chlamydia, and that is a change from two years ago. So I'd just say, I think the case you were mentioning, it was actually in the UK. He came from from Asia, as you mentioned, and a lot of antibiotic resistance has come out of Asia, the quinolone resistance, for example, original penicillin and tetracycline resistance, just maybe uh, a lot of inconsistent use, uh, possibly. But that patient had to end up getting admitted to the hospital, I think, for a carbapenem, like for erdapenem. Oh. Uh, so it is a concern uh, that we need, there needs to be drug pipeline, you know, that, that it's going to be uh, a big resource utilization if all of our patients with uncomplicated gonorrhea are getting admitted for erdipenem. So the current recommendation is ceftriaxone, 250 milligrams IM, and azithromycin, one gram, and it's dual therapy. If they have cephalosporin allergy, Two grams of azithromycin is is what we used to recommend, but the CDC does not like us to use that now because they're worried that we're really going to lose azithro as well. 
My expert opinion is because I'll tell you what the alternative is for cephalosporin allergic patients. It was a small study, about 143, 140 so people in each arm. They got gemafloxacin and 240 milligrams of IM gent, amycin. Oh, <laughs> and, and it works really well. It seemed to work really well, but gemafloxacin, there's shortages. So people are still going to be struggling with what to do with the very highly cephalosporin allergic per person. So you might need to pull out the two grams of azithromycin. So let's, let's talk about the treatment. Let's, you, you, so you told us for gonorrhea, we're, we're double treating ceftriaxone and azithromycin, and, and we just went through the second line. Let's say someone has, we do a gram stain, there's there's no gram-negative diplococci, so we think this is non-gonococcal urethritis. What are we going to treat with there? And I read that there might be directly observed treatment for this. I, I, I didn't realize that was a thing for, for STIs, or for this one specifically. Well... Actually, all of the frontline drugs that the CDC has in the treatment guidelines are single-dose or single-day regimens. Not so much that you need to do an observe, but it just it enhances adherence to have a single dose. So depending on your setting, like in the SCI clinic where I worked for 10 years, I could rip open a gram for the clam, as I used to like to say for chlamydia, <laughs> a gram of azithromycin, and mix it up right there and give it to them. And then I'd give them a mint because I'd say, you know, a couple of minutes, it's going to taste bitter like an aspirin. And, you know, it's full service. Um, so you could do that. If you've got the meds in there, you can give them directly, observe therapy. But the idea is you want to give them single dose just to enhance adherence and compliance. The average compliance with a seven-day course of doxycycline, which is obviously an alternative for chlamydia, is about 38%. So there's a lot of incompletely treated chlamydia, a lot of chlamydia that's then being spread, a lot of PID that's coming because you didn't complete your treatment. So single dose treatment, you can get it in your office if you want, but it's really the more the idea, the ceftriaxone typically has to be given in a setting. So you're going to observe that they're, they're not going to go home with a shot. Uh, but the azithromycin, if you have it there, you can give it to them or you can give them a prescription if you think, whatever you think is going to be the best for, to enhance their uh, adherence to that. Are there any nuances among the treatment for chlamydia that we need to be aware of uh, based on the site? Um, do you think that's too detailed for for the audience? Or, well, if you have your audience, if there are uh, quite a bit of men who have sex with men in your practice, I guess this is just something to be on the lookout for. There's some preliminary observations that for rectal chlamydia and again it's so important to swab especially men who are having sex with men who report being bottom partners or receptive partners for anal intercourse or if they put their mouth on their partners if you only check the urine there was a great study done by julia marcus in san francisco if you, in this std clinic in san francisco if they had only checked the urine the bottom line is they'd miss like 90 percent of the gonorrhea and like 70 percent of the chlamydia i mean you really need to check all sites so if you have rectal chlamydia, it seems like there's a little bit of a signal that azithromycin is not quite as good as a week of doxycycline, um, which is kind of the opposite. So, But we need more numbers. We need kind of bigger studies. So it might be something that they'd really want to watch out for. Maybe they definitely want to do a test, to, not a test of cure, but maybe kind of rescreen. Men who are quite active with a number of male partners, you know, we definitely uh, suggest that they get screened every three to six months anyway. So it could be that some of the 
what we think is kind of reinfection that we were seen, had seen in some of the uh, PrEP trials could be undertreated the first time and are, and are persistent. I want to check in, uh, Paul, uh, you first, and then Brian, any any other questions you want to ask on this topic? Because I think we're sort of like coming coming to the end of the show here. We should start to wrap up. Oh, I, I think we've covered a lot of ground. So I, right. I think we're a good place. Um, I, I think one thing that we kind of did for syphilis that might be relevant here would be the test of cure versus um, testing again for rescreening at a certain interval. Yeah, that's a good question, and it gets often confused. So for chlamydia, gonorrhea, and trichomonas in men or women, the recommendation is to get rescreened in three to four months. And that's not so much that we think our treatment didn't work, but it's because partners don't get treated. So it's a proxy to see if they got reinfected. And it's on the, that basis actually things like expedited partner therapy, where there's now legislative approval that you can write a prescription for someone who's not your patient to help get partners treated kind of comes into play with that, that that's really helped decrease the reinfection rate, having other options for partner treatment. The only test of cure really is if you had to use a an antibiotic because for like an allergy reason and it wasn't top line for say resistant gonorrhea or in pregnant women they do a test of cure which is like you know a couple weeks later three to four weeks later so you can make sure it's not the old dna that's still clearing out um but otherwise all the rest is really called re-screening and it's to to see if they're kind of a proxy that their partner got treated and just to clarify it's not recommended right now that we treat part like we let's say I diagnose someone in clinic. I'm going to treat them for gonorrhea and chlamydia. I shouldn't give them like medicine for their partner. I should tell them that their partner has to go see see a provider. But yeah, how do you handle that in practicality? The first thing is that it is your duty to to tell them that they should let their partner know. And we kind of were talking about some help that you could get in that regard. Uh, from your disease intervention specialists. But for things like chlamydia, if it's a big state like California or Chicago, chlamydia is not their high priority. They're like going full out on new HIV cases and syphilis and gonorrhea. So it may really be up to you. But depending on the state, there's only five states that don't do this. You now have explicitly clarified prescribing law that supports your, your ability to write a prescription or call in a prescription for their partner and up to three partners for their treatment. Uh, and you don't have to, there's typically, you can go to your state's STD EPT, Expedited Partner Therapy website, and you can usually download an information sheet that would accompany that for that partner that says, this is what you're being treated with. This is what, why you should, you should probably go to the clinic and get yourself checked out if you can, but if you just really can't take the time, this should treat you. This is the side effects you should watch out for. And you're not held responsible for not having a chart on that patient or really having them in care which the states had to go through the legal process to make sure that you were able to do that. And it was really on the basis of showing that that strategy compared to traditional partner notification, which was tell your partner to go to the clinic, uh, resulted for people who were randomized to the expedited partner therapy and they could get tr treatment to their own partners, uh, the reinfection rates were lower. So often your patient will know what strategy will work best for their treatment for their patient. You shouldn't double their prescription because that's really not kosher, but you can write a separate prescription for them. If, if they need the IM ceftriaxone though, what's the workaround there? So that is also state by state. So I would let you know for a lot of states, this has only been approved for heterosexual couples. 
because the concern was that what would be the opportunity loss if a high risk um, men have sex with men by virtue of, say, sexual partner number or condoms, what would be the likelihood we'd miss HIV or syphilis and because they didn't come in for full testing? So that was a concern enough that most states only do it for heterosexual couples. And since, for the most part, in heterosexual couples right now, we're not seeing a lot of oropharyngeal gonorrhea, a non-injectable cephalosporin like oral cefixime is an okay substitute for IM ceftriaxone if you can rule out by having a negative pharyngeal swab that you're only really treating somebody for genital rectal gonorrhea. So cefixime and azithro can both be pills. So for I think that maybe New York does it that way. For example, uh, or they might say, gonorrhea is too complicated and you need IM and we can't get around the complication of knowing if it's in your throat or not. So we're only doing partner EPT for chlamydia. So it's state by state and you can see uh, if it's heterosexual only and what antibiotics uh, they're covering in that. Yeah, it might be. I think a workaround, uh, probably what I would do is chat with your local ID or STI expert, and and then you can sort of like have a plan. So the first time, you know, once you start putting this in practice, you'll you'll know what the regulation is in your state. That might be easier. That's a good idea. Well, we should ask you for your take home points. Uh, this this has been awesome. I I definitely uh, I definitely learned a ton. Um, so thank you. Oh, my number one take-home point is routinely take a sexual history. Um, if screening for syphilis now in men who have sex with men is a thing, and there is a lot of syphilis right now in high-risk men who have sex with men, you're not going to know if you don't ask. Don't make assumptions. Tell them why you're asking. Leave the screening door open, quote-unquote, to tell them if anything ever changes. Don't stop asking about sexual activity when they say, I'm, I'm, no, I'm married. When was the last time you were with anybody other than your partner? Last week, last month, last year? I want to know, and this is why. Don't stop if they say I'm not sexually active, oral or anything. When was the last time? Last week, last month? So I've hammered that, but I feel like that's the number one thing. I would say for syphilis, it is really complicated, but um, if you don't take a sexual history, you won't know if it's on your differential, and you can send, you'll find out what your screening test is at your hospital and the algorithms will help you work through it. Uh, neurosyphilis questions, call an ID person. And for chlamydia and gonorrhea, I mean, the STD treatment guidelines are really super good. I would recommend people download the app and it's more than just treatment. So a lot of your common questions about what's the latest for the killer gonorrhea this year, because it's gonna keep changing, is a really good resource. And don't forget to report and, uh, Take advantage of expedited partner therapy once you get the hang of it because it can really help overall reinfection rates. Very cool. So thank you so much. It's my pleasure. I'm so excited that I got to talk about syphilis for (laughs) nearly an hour. (laughs) This has been another episode of the Curbsiders bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. There's the stuff. Get show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. 
We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com or reach out on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at thecurbsiders. You sound hauntingly like the movie guy. Uh, yeah, movie, is this the movie phone episode of Seinfeld? <laughs> Why don't you tell me what you would like to see? <laughs> but I tried on, but we can go normal now. So thanks to thank you so much to Kate Grant, who helped a lot with this episode with her expertise, um, and to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams, uh, who runs our Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris Chumanchu on Facebook. Again, I'm Brian Brown. Thanks for having me on again. Thank you, Brian. And this has been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams, and goodbye.